Good morning. A lot of people are on vacation, so we're just going to have a good time like a little family today in the scriptures. That's right. We are in Acts chapter 2. Let's start with a word of prayer and then we can get into the text itself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity that we are able to enjoy your word, enjoy uh, worshiping, enjoy singing, enjoy praising you, enjoy being reminded, at the same time being convicted and, and being reminded again of our need to repent and to remember how faithful you are. You are a promise-making, promise-keeping God, and we so often forget. And we believe that other things in this world are promise-making, promise-keeping, but they are all liars. So help us this morning to be reminded of your gospel. Glorify yourself. In your name I pray. Amen. Real quick before we start, is this going to be carrying me this morning? If so, I probably shouldn't stand behind it. I know. Okay, just fair check. All right, so we are in Acts chapter 2 this morning, and we are going to be looking at verses 37 uh, through 41, 37 through 41, although we are going to reference um, verse 36 as well. It, we're going to, this morning, kind of wander through the text, and the reason why we're going to kind of wander through the text, and we're going to be a little haphazard in the text, is because Peter's application of his message has so many intricacies that it doesn't really uh, conform itself to a nice, easy outline if you're really going to be faithful to the text. Now, certainly you could pick out one of his points and preach on one of his points, but you miss the flavor of the text. And so what I really want to do is I want to, this morning, do something I don't oftentimes do, and this, I want to I bring to full flower as much as I possibly can every point of his message of his application this morning. Does that make sense? So I want, I want you to be able to see it as full as possible in the time that we have this morning. So let's start reading, if we would, at verse 29. We're actually going to read to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to unpack it. Starting in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing what God or that God had sworn it with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection from, of, of the Christ that he would not be abandoned or that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my right hand, Sit, I'm sorry, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And I just lost my place. Uh, and Peter, verse 38, said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone for uh, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, with, uh, to, uh, I'm sorry, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God 
and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we're going to start with verse 36 again, because there's one point I want to make in verse 36 that we purposely did not address last week, and I want to make sure and get it this week, and then we're going to jump into 37 and work our way through our text this morning, all the way through verse 41. You'll notice in verse 36, in, in uh, probably what would be understood as the transitionary verse between the, the, the body of his message and the application of the message that's recorded is verse 36, this transitional verse. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now you remember last week if you were here, and if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to it. We talked about this whole Lord issue that is so important in the text. But I want to add to it, because it shows up several times in the text, I want to add to it another understanding that today for some reason, I know the reason, but actually it's a variety of reasons. It's controversial. And I just want to grab the bull by the horns and present it to you right off the bat. I want you to notice words mean something, don't they? Right? And order of words means something. And the connections of words to words mean something. God is very intentional through the writers of these texts that we know as the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, he's communicating something really important. Notice what he says in verse 36. Again, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what you have is you have in verse 36 a contrast, don't you? On the one hand, you have God, the Father, on the other hand, you have all the people. That's the contrast. Okay? God the Father here is described as doing what? God has made, which is past, present, or future. Past tense. Which, and the idea is, it's actually a perfect, but a perfect is a past tense with the ongoing ramifications. You've heard me say that before. So the idea is he has Past tense made him both Lord and Christ, past tense, ongoing all the way through into the future, forever. He had, in other words, another way to put it is, he's made him Lord and Christ, and he remains what? Lord and Christ. This is really important. The contrast is with the people. This Jesus, what? who you crucified. So you have God and the people. God made him Lord and Christ. The people, what? Crucified him. They killed him. They rejected him. They despised him. They spit on him. They turned their backs to him. They went their own way. And all the rest of the ways the Scripture presented, right? You can argue it this way. They rejected he being the Messiah, Christ being the Messiah, or Jesus being the Messiah. They rejected it, right? They refuse to acknowledge what? That he's Lord. Correct? Let me ask you a quick question. If the people refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm laying aside Messiah, Christ means Messiah, so we're just adding those two together, Jesus Christ as Lord. If people refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, is he therefore not Lord? Does that change anything? No. He is Lord. Very important. This is really important. So if He is Lord because God made, God the Father made Him Lord, if He is Lord, the only thing you can say about the people is they are in rebellion and denial. Does that make sense? They're in rebellion and denial. It's the only category. And the rebellion and denial demonstrates itself in their murdering of Jesus. Make sense? Why do I bring this up? Here's why. Because there is a teaching, and it's prevalent in our churches today, not in this church, but in many, many churches today, it's very, very common. And the, the statement is, you need to make Christ Lord of your life. That is not biblical. You will never find that in the Scriptures. The concept is alien. He is Lord. You're either in rebellion or not. 
you are either in denial or not. But the argument of the scriptures is the rebellion and the denial ends at a very specific time. This is really important. The rebellion and denial end in a specific time, and this text tells us where it ends. Not verse 36, but in the text that, that follows today, at the end of today, I'm sorry, at the end of today we're going to see it. Because what happens as Peter gives his application? They real quickly begin to respond, don't they? And what do, what do the people say? What must we do? Right? You know what that is? That's people, by the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives, are already beginning to acknowledge what? Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior, Messiah. He's Lord and Christ. Which is why when he caught, when Peter responds to their question, and I'm just tap, just tapping on it right now, he says, "Repent," and we'll get into the bath, be baptized in a little bit. But when he declares the primary statement in the text, "Repent," what is he saying? He's saying it's time to end your rebellion. This is the time to end the rebellion. They don't make Jesus Lord. The repentance is acknowledging what? That he, that he is Lord. That's a radical difference. Christ ain't Lord if he needs us to make him that, so that to be in that position. We're Lord, because we're in authority over him, because we're declaring him that way. No, that doesn't work. If you ever hear anybody say, and usually it's a two step process, you accept Jesus Christ as what? First. Savior, and then later on somewhere, you will make him Lord of your life. That's not a biblical construct. In fact, it's, it, it, it is completely contrary to the Scripture in every way. And as Rusty said, it puts you up in effect and Lord because your authority over whether he can be Lord or not. That's downright bizarre. He's Lord, as evidenced by for all those who rebel and never repent. One day they're going to stand before Christ, Lord, and he's going to say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. That sounds like uh, these rebellious people don't have any authority at all, doesn't it? They have any authority? They have none. So this idea that, that, that Christ, that we make Christ Lord, is, is insane. Biblically, it's antithetical to the teaching of the Scripture. He is Lord. The only issue is, who are you? Not who is He. Who are you? He is Lord. He is Messiah. You're in denial and rebellion, or He's Lord. And that's why throughout the New Testament, here's what you see. When people repent and believe... That repenting and believing acknowledges who he is where they didn't acknowledge before. And they, by the power of the Spirit in them, humbly follow their Lord, no longer in rebellion. Does that make sense? This is not something you choose. Quite to the contrary, we're going to see in the text this morning, it's something he chooses. It's not something you choose at all. <laughs> not even close. Don't let anybody tell you this idea that you need to make Christ Lord. It is wrong, wrong, wrong from beginning to end. Does that make sense? Now, we're a small little group this morning. I'm just going to ask, any questions about that? I, and feel free to ask. I just think it's really important we get this because it, it's a, it, this, I would argue, is one of the radical departures from one group of Christians and another group of Christians. A radical departure. I grew up in various churches always hearing, we need to make Christ Lord of our lives. And I suspect many of us did. That's not what the scriptures teach. And I hear some Christian songs even today singing about this as well. It's, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. He is Lord. We are just in denial and rebellion. Or in, which means, by the way, we're going to find out if we're denial or rebellion, it means we're lost. We are lost. Or he's Lord of our life. 
Now, I would submit to you, he's also Lord of our life if we're not, even if we're in rebellion. This is why it's so, so important we get this. He is Lord of your life, whether you're in denial and rebellion or whether you humbly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, acknowledge and lovingly submit to the one who loves you who is Lord. Even if you are in absolute rebellion, he is Lord of your life. Can I just ask you, can you give me any examples of that? Teaching in the scripture or example in story? Anybody? I'm going to give you a few, but any? Okay, for sake of time, here we go. Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a classic example. As a matter of fact, it's such, hold the thought, it's such a classic example, he is, in, in Romans chapter 9, singled out as the example. He, it says he rose up Pharaoh for this specific purpose. Why? So he could destroy him. Isn't that something? Pharaoh's in rebellion. Absolute rebellion. But that's why he existed. Who was Lord? Was Pharaoh Lord? I think if Pharaoh was Lord, his army would have had success against the Jews that were fleeing, the Jewish slaves. That should, that should be a no-brainer, shouldn't it? But guess what? Who was Lord of Pharaoh's life? Christ was. You said Judas. Judas, classic. He, he did not view himself God, uh, Christ as being Lord of his life, did he? What was Lord of his life? 30 pieces of silver. And fame, which he didn't get, he ultimately didn't get either one. And freedom from Rome. You can throw that one in there too. Didn't get any of those three, did he? No, he just hung himself and then his bowels all gushed out in the field. But did he serve God's purposes? Absolutely he did. And you can go down that path forever throughout the scriptures, can't you? The Bible says what about kings? God, the heart of the king is what? In the hand of God to turn it whichever way he wills. Who's Lord? Not the kings. <laughs> Who's Lord? Christ is. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. You're going to go here. You're going to make this rule. For his purposes, right? Does the scripture say, the heart of the believing king is the hand of God to turn it whichever way he will? That it says? No! It doesn't. So I want us to, and, and, and theology is important, and words are important, and concepts are really important. We need to get this. We absolutely need to understand that. If you have any questions about that, feel free. We can talk about it afterwards. But we've got to move on. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? A couple of things I want to say in verse 36. I want you to notice a couple of things that are really, really important. Really interesting. Now, when they heard this, what is the this referencing? The entire part of Peter's message, of course, that we have here. But especially, I would argue, the things that are closest to verse 37. That is 34, 35, and 36. And what is most close? Lord and Christ. That's most close to verse 37, isn't it? Right there it is. Oh, and also even more close is what? Whom you crucified. You see that all? You see it all there? Again, the whole of, of Peter's message is, is, is part of this response, but it's interesting, the response comes up when verse 36 is stated. Isn't that when they start to respond? Very important. The people know the Old Testament prophecies. He just gave them a few. They, they all know about Messiah, <clears throat> the predictions of Messiah. And he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, what? That they crucified their Messiah. That they crucified Ready? Their Lord. They crucified their Lord. When they heard this, it says they were cut 
to the heart. That's an interesting turn of a phrase. They were cut to the heart. That sounds like a pretty serious wound, doesn't it? I want you to think about this for a second. Cut to the heart. Yeah, of course, in that day, it would either be a dagger or a sword, right? Or maybe a spear. But a spear is probably more of a piercing than a cutting. So more than likely, it's more the picture of a, a dagger or a sword. And you get the picture of a, a slashing. You get that? And as a matter of fact, the word cut actually has the idea of slashing. Now, can I just ask you a quick question? Remembering that God uses words very specifically, if you got slashed to the heart, what would that be like? You think it'd be painful a little bit? I mean, what we know about anatomy, if you get slashed to the heart, lots of things are happening, aren't there? First, the skin is cut. And once the skin is cut through, there's a little bit of fat. And then after the fat, you're going through some muscle. Think that hurts? Think that's the uh, disabling? And then through that, it starts going through bone and cartilage. Jim cartilage. Actually, it's cartilage, but I had to use cartilage. It's going through. And after that, it's getting some more muscle and nerves. All that's got muscles and nerves, right? And finally gets the heart, and the heart gets cut. And the heart doesn't really have a bunch of nerves on it, but <laughs> I'm on this side, should be over here somewhere, sorry. That's going to be pretty painful and debilitating, isn't it? Isn't it? I say that to say this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, be very careful in reading this text, because we can really sterilize it. Fold what I just said into their statement. Do you think, do you think that, that in this day, the day of, what we call the day of Pentecost, do you think in this day, as Peter's preaching, do you think you hear them saying, Okay, brothers, what do we need to do? Okay, what do you need to do? Do you think that's what you hear? Do you think that's what the response would be? Or do you think that spiritually they're bleeding out, as it were, right? Is that the picture? They got a mortal wound. This wound that the Spirit, using the means called Peter... The Spirit just brought a mortal wound on them, spiritually speaking. And because the Spirit's at work in them, their spirit recognized the mortality of the wound. Do you think that they said, what do we need to do? Or do you think there was some serious crying out? What do you think? Do you get the picture? And, and unless you miss it, Peter's still preaching. <laughs> this is so important to them. This is so painful. This is so gripping. This is so essential. This is so now. Needed fix now. You get the picture? Needed help now, if I don't get the answer this moment, I die. And so in the midst of his preaching, the people interrupt him and they cry out. They absolutely cry out. What do we need to do? They are absolutely destroyed. Now why do I camp on this? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but that's not the response to the gospel today. Have you noticed that? That is not the response to the gospel today. The gospel that is preached today usually starts out with things like God has a God loves you and 
has a wonderful plan for your life. Isn't that classic? That's absolutely classic. Is that where Peter started? Did he ever say that? Did he ever imply any aspect of that anywhere in this message? No. What did he do? You know what Peter did? All he did is confront and condemn. Didn't he? In effect, all Peter did was said, you are in rebellion and in denial. Isn't that what he said? That's the whole, I'm just summing up his whole message we've been looking at the last three weeks. You're in rebellion. You're in denial. And this is who Christ is. And this is what you did with him. This isn't God has a, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is Christ the Lord came and you hated him. See the difference? You hated him. And you crucified him. That's a radical difference. That gospel doesn't sell today, friends. You don't believe it? You leave here, go somewhere, go to a park somewhere this afternoon and tell this message to somebody and watch how they respond. It doesn't sell. Now, if the Spirit's working in their life, it will. But is it, is it any wonder that most people who supposedly come to faith in Christ don't respond like this? You see that, by, by the way, some people can say, well, but Steve, you're just picking out one passage. No, you can go walk through the New Testament, you see it everywhere. The gospel message being preached is not some sort of pretty, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. And full of lots of questions, which we'll get to in a second. <clears throat> the message is one of severe, severe condemnation an explanation of how they have offended a holy God. That's what it is in the Scriptures. It is. And frankly, can I just say this? That's what the world hates about Jesus. That's exactly what they hate. And it's exactly what they need to hear. The Gospel is a very, very offensive message to those who are lost. It has to be. It has to be. And that's exactly what Peter preached. He told them who Jesus was. He told them how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. He told about the what the future, what's coming in the future. And he told them how they're condemned in graphic, graphic terms. Before we get off of verse 37, though, <clears throat> it is interesting also, and I think, it's, I think this is really an important issue that I would really like to raise because <clears throat> I find it throughout the Scriptures. In verse 37, let me just ask you a quick, quick question. Who asks the question? Who asks the question in verse 37? The people did, right? The people asked the question. You see that? What must we do? What should we do? They asked the question, right? What has Peter been doing for his whole message? He's been declaring, hasn't he? He's just been declaring. The people respond with the question. Now, <clears throat> Why do I bring this up? Because I would challenge you to look, feel free to, <clears throat> when you look through the Scriptures, here's what you're going to find. Whenever the Gospel is being presented to unsaved people, the person presenting the Gospel never asks questions. Doesn't. Doesn't ask them. You know what he does? The person presenting the gospel always makes declarations. So he does. Always making declarations. This is truth. 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 
this is truth, this is truth. And when the Spirit moves in people's lives, guess who you find universally asking questions? The people who are under conviction ask questions. Every time. You know what our gospel looks like today? Boatloads of questions. That's what we do today. We ask questions. And they're leading questions that are expecting that the person who's hearing them can actually answer them. But unless the Spirit's moving in their life, can they answer them? No. See, the problem is doctrinally. Doctrinally, we believe that unsaved people who are dead in their transgressions and sins can answer correctly. How can they answer correctly? They're dead. What, how, how in the world could they possibly answer the question? in any correct way. We ask the questions, expecting to give the answers so we could oftentimes to entrap them. But we ask the questions and hope they get the right answer. When they don't, which they usually don't, then we've got to try to work it in and then ask them the question again to try to manipulate them almost to answer it correctly. So that we can walk down with the sales pitch down to the final conclusion and make the sale. Is that what it looks like? Why do we do that? Can I tell you why? It's a really simple answer. Because we really don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We really don't believe the Holy Spirit can really by himself, with using means, the proclamation of the word, can change somebody from death to life. We don't believe that. So it's the Spirit me. Spirit does his job, I do my job, and somehow we work together, and da-da-da-da! And if you don't believe that's really true, how many times have you heard anybody say this? I just want to thank the Lord because I just led so-and-so to Christ. Really? You did? Serious? You're smirking back there. You've probably heard it a lot, haven't you? Me too. Me too. I think we all have. Think about it. Did you lead anybody to Christ? Really? Who do you think you are? I, I remember for years saying that. There's a theology issue. That was just a means. That was just a tool of proclamation. Who led the person to Jesus? The Spirit did. I didn't. The Spirit did. He took the words and led them, brought them, drugged them. Use whatever words you want to. Certainly, Saul was drugged, wasn't he? Away from Damascus. <laughs> somebody else's house. The Spirit does that work. I'm just a tool who proclaims what he told me to proclaim through the word. Correct? You see, it, it, our idea is somehow that salvation is a partnership, and it's not. It just isn't. What does Peter do? Peter proclaims a, may I use the word, a deadly message. <laughs> or to use it in modern terms, it's a tactical message. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, it's targeted. This thing is high power, it's potent, and he comes fully loaded with the truth, doesn't he? And hearing this message, remember what we said way back when we were in John and in Mark? Remember what we said over and over and over again? When you come in contact with Jesus, what? Something's going to change. Correct? Something's going to change. But it's only when we come loaded. Not some sort of namby-pamby thing. We come loaded with the truth, proclaiming the truth. You know what's going to happen? People are going to come in contact with Jesus and they're either going to harden in their hearts the rebellion and, and denial or they're going to say, what must we do? That's what's going to happen. But we're terrified to do that. Because we're kind of like Peter at at, at his denial. 
We're terrified of what may happen if I actually speak this way. Isn't that what happens? We're afraid. And so we sit there and we ask questions because that's pretty safe. And we kind of, you know, Jesus loves you. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't know that. Maybe you're like Pharaoh. Right? Maybe you're like Pharaoh. I don't know if he's got a wonderful plan for your life. I know this. Even if you're in rebellion, he may have a wonderful plan for your life for me as a believer. What's that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, it's crucial that we get this. Peter declares. He pulls out all the stops and declares. The Spirit cuts to the quick and the people begin to ask questions. Could I just... I'm going to get off 37 right after this statement. I'm convinced <clears throat> that if we declare the truth of Jesus... I'm not saying we, we, we just take what he did and do the exact same thing. I'm saying if we declare the truth of Jesus, including the condemnation and the judgment, and it's only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Correct? <clears throat> when, we, when we call out, proclaim out the true gospel, if the Spirit's working in people's hearts, you know what they're going to do? What are they going to do? Well, before they even repent, what are they going to do most likely? They're going to ask questions. Heart-rending questions. Mortal questions. Painful questions. Can I just submit to you? You won't find them asking questions like, oh, how do you know Jesus is really God? How do you know God really exists? Those are not the questions you're going to find. You know, you know what those questions are? Those questions are clear indicators that there is no sword or dagger in their hearts. Does that make sense? There's no sword or dagger in their heart. Because when the sword or dagger is in their heart, the, the, the trivial things disappear because the Spirit's at work. And the, and the questions are going to be life-altering questions. That's what's going to happen. There are going to be questions that are going to very quickly lead to repenting. And acknowledging the truth of what? That Christ is Lord. That's what's going to happen. Verse 38. <clears throat> after, after the people cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says to them, verse 38, Repent and, believe, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38 has been a controversial text for centuries, millennia even. More than a millennia. What's the controversy? And Peter's response to them is, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, or implication being, you will be saved. And so if you read the text, you come away thinking, scratching your head saying, that means we need to be, we need to repent and be baptized in order to be saved, correct? Isn't that what, what it looks like? And I get that, but I don't think that's at all what Peter's saying. I don't. Let me help you understand this real quickly. In verse 38, and I know we don't necessarily see this in the, in the English, but in the Greek it becomes a little bit more clear. So let me just lay this out for you. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent, plural, be baptized, singular, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your plural sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, his choice of plurals and singulars. On the one hand, you have plural, repent, plural, forgiveness of sins, and in the middle of it, you have the singular, be baptized. <clears throat> Seemingly, it can be argued, at least linguistically, that the plurals are closely connected and the singular stands on its own. So if that is the case, 
by itself. I'm not moving out, out, of, out of chapter 2, verse 38 yet. But if that's the case, you have repent for the forgiveness of your sins, plural, plural, connection. In the middle of it, baptized, singular. Be baptized, singular. The argument then would be that the repentance and the forgiveness of sins come together. And baptism stands on its own for something else. It's interesting that earlier on, it says in verse 21, in the same message, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who what? Calls upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. Do you see any baptism there? In verse 21, do you see any baptism term at all there? No, you don't. <clears throat> all you see is call upon the name of the Lord, and it just begs the question, what is this calling? Right? Verse 38 explains what the calling is. Doesn't it? Call out in repentance. <clears throat> in verse 21, it's if you call out, or call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And in context, the repentance is the calling. So the implication of verse 21 is if repentance is there, the calling out in the name of the Lord, you will what? Be saved, right? You'll be saved. Is that, is that consistent with the rest of the Scriptures? This is where we get into the, what do we do with the rest of the Scriptures? We fold them in. Because there's got to be consistency somewhere that helps us understand this passage in verse uh, 38. Is there any other passage in, in the Scriptures that seemingly talk about be baptized? Well, there's a questionable passage in, in Mark 16, in that questionable section, whether it's really part of the Scripture or not, which we were in when we, when we looked at Mark. So you can always go back to that passage in Mark if you want to look at that. Other than the Mark 16 passage, you don't find this connection with baptism and salvation. Really what you find is what? Repentance, right? Calling upon the name of the Lord. Romans chapter 10 is a, is a good example, if I remember right. That will help us understand this text. Romans 10, starting in verse 9. <clears throat> because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, you're ending your rebellion, right? Because he is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with, your, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, do you find baptism in there? 10 and 11. <clears throat> you don't find baptism, do you? What do you find instead? You have, you have two things still. You have believing in what? Confessing, Confessing with the mouth. Correct? With the mouth. Speaking, in other words. Correct? So you believe, and then your mouth proclaims. Correct? Your mouth confesses. Do you see it? The point I'm trying to make is this. If we believe, does the Scriptures, and if you go through the rest of the Scriptures, what you primarily find in the New Testament is what, what brings you salvation? Repenting and Believing. Here in Acts chapter 2, we have this confessing and believing found in verse 21, right? And then we have repentance as well in verse 38. Here in Romans chapter 10, you have believing, which is the theme that is throughout the New Testament. If you believe, then you're saved, right? Repent and believe. But he says confess as well, doesn't he? Here. Here's my point. I would argue that what Paul is doing in Romans 10 and what, what Peter's doing in uh, Acts 2, and later on, Peter talks about repenting again and, be, and, believe, and being saved, but he doesn't talk about baptism throughout the book of Acts, the first 11 chapters. It shows up again and again, but baptism doesn't show up. What you have instead is if someone... Romans 10, if someone truly repents and believes, what are they going to do? They're going to speak. 
That's what they're going to do. They're going to speak. In Acts chapter 2, if they truly repent and believe, they are going to what? 2.38. This gets into the plural singular. They're going to singularly what? Be baptized. If they're truly saved, they are going to be baptized, acknowledging publicly what Christ has accomplished. Correct? Acknowledging and proclaiming what Christ has accomplished. And lo and behold, what happens? People repent and believe and then are what? Baptized. So I would argue this controversial passage isn't necessarily controversial. I think when you look at the whole counsel of the Scriptures, what you find is belief and repentance is essential for salvation. And what happens by default, because He is Lord, and if I am repenting and believing, it's by the Spirit, and I'm repenting from my rebellion and refusal to acknowledge and denying that He is Lord and Redeemer, Instead, I am Lord, I am Redeemer. Isn't that our nat native state? And in acknowledging Him, my default, and I'm doing that because the Spirit's at work in me, transforming me, giving me a, a fleshy heart, and tearing away that what? That old, hard heart. And with that new, fleshy heart, my desires change, don't they? My longings change, don't they? And so what happens? I confess that Jesus is Lord. And I find myself desiring to, to be acknowledged and recognized as someone who is redeemed, as someone who has had the Spirit at work in them, transforming them, and acknowledging what He has done in and through me, and what he is doing, what he promises to continue to do. It's the result. It's the result. So, I don't think that there's a controversy here. I think the point is that if, if we are truly repenting and believing, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, if I may sum it up, if we're repenting and believing, we are going to follow. If we, were repent, if we repent and believe, then the Lord is listened to. Now, is that taught in the Scriptures? Well, yeah. My sheep, what? Hear my voice. And they follow me, right? And I know them. Sounds like that's what he's talking about here. When I, by the Spirit, find the ending of the rebellion and the denial, the result is something that doesn't look like rebellion and denial anymore. Right? Because my new heart doesn't allow that. And so what happens instead of denying and rebelling, I find myself longing for what? Him. Longing for what? Glorifying Him. Longing for what? For His kingdom to come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Does that make sense? That's what's happening here. Verse 38. Let's move on. We're running out of time already. It's not right. Not right. <clears throat> 39. Uh, going back to verse 38, just to continue to read. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive... We've got to finish up verse 38. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, how could Peter possibly say that? Because it was promised throughout the Old Testament. Zechariah talks about it. Amos talks about it. The Gospels talked about it. Jesus talked about it. Even in the beginning of Acts it was talked about, wasn't it? What's that? Joel, Joel talked about it? Absolutely. For sake of time, we won't look at those passages. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. A couple of things I want to point out in verse 39. The promise begs the question, that statement, verse 39. The promise begs the question, what is the promise he's referring to? I would submit to you, it's the entirety of his message. And the conclusion of his message, if you repent, 
and believe, you'll be saved. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, and, it, and then that promise drags in all that the rest of the scriptures have already and will teach about what? About what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And it also includes the promise of what Jesus talked about, that he will save you, if I sum it up, to the uttermost. Correct? He's going to return. He's going to take you back to where he is so that where he is, you will be with him forever. You'll be with him. And all the rest of the promises are summed up in this one promise. So verse 39, for the promise is for who? For you who are hearing, but only if what? You repent and believe, verse 21, right? Call in the name of the Lord. For you, and for who? Your children, and where? And for who? All who are far Does that have a, a, a sounding, a, an inkling, or a resemblance to you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most part of the earth? Does that you connect the dots there? The promise is for you, if you repent, for your children, if you repent, and for all those far off, if they repent. That promise is applicable to them as well. But before we get off of that, please understand the promise is talking about the ramifications of the Spirit coming, not just getting the Spirit. The promise is evidenced already in these people who are crying out because they've been cut to the heart. What shall we do? The initial inklings of the Spirit at work in their life. And you know, once they are saved, the Spirit work will diminish or increase? Increase! So the promise, and this is really crucial, the promise that he's referring includes the idea of the increasing Spirit work in their life in acknowledging Christ as Lord and Redeemer, Messiah. Why do I say this? Because what Peter's really saying is something that is contrary, again, to what a lot of the Christian church says today. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Zane Hodges, a theologian who's now dead, I believe, <clears throat> wrote a book, and he was very popular, and he said, and he still is popular to this day, he said, if ever, follow me on this, if ever anyone has an inkling of faith, even the slightest evidence of faith, they are saved. Goes back to the walk an aisle, raise your hand, pray a prayer. <clears throat> Charles Ryrie rejected that, and he said, well, no, no, there's got to be more than that, but he argued for the two-step process. Getting saved, he's a Savior, and later on the Lord and that's the hope for, that you don't just stay here in Savior, but you eventually dedicate, this is the other term, dedicate your life to the Lord, and then you'll go on and then you'll really flourish, and you'll see a, a dramatic growth in spiritual growth, although you won't see a dramatic growth in the first step, there will be growth. So he denied the idea of no growth. He said there will be some growth, but it'll be really insignificant until you make him Lord of your life, and then it takes off. That's not what Peter's saying here. What Peter's talking about is this idea, if he began the good work in you, he will what? Continue to, to fulfill it or perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ. You will continue that trajectory of glorifying Christ in greater and greater ways until you go home to a Jesus. Then you'll really glorify him. 30, 60, 100 fold beforehand, right? And you only get the implication, but the idea is there that once you get there, my goodness, branches will be breaking off your tree because they'll be so laden with fruit. Make sense? This idea that somehow we could be saved and not exhibit fruit and not glorify Christ and still live in rebellion is contrary to this text. 
The promise is made that the Spirit will be with you, that He will work, that He will transform you as He's already beginning because you're crying out, what? What shall we do? Verse 40, oh, sorry, verse 39. Then the next thing that's really intriguing, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord, or everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now I know that sometimes for some, some people in our church, not many, but some people in our church, this can be controversial. But I want you to notice it. That text does not say he calls everyone. That's not what it says. <clears throat> the promise, though, is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. The clear understanding of this text is that the Lord can't call everyone. <laughs> Effectively. He can't. Right? Because if he calls everyone, and the argument is he calls everyone, some people make, a lot of people make, he calls everyone, but a lot of people reject him. That's the argument that's given. But wait a second, it says the promise is for everyone who he calls. And he calls everyone, then everyone has the promise. And that promise includes the Holy Spirit. It includes salvation, whether they reject it or not. Now we've got uni Unitarianism or Universalism. Isn't that the idea then? That's not what he's saying. The promise is only to who? To everyone who he calls. And the scriptures argue that everyone he calls, Romans 8 and 9, if you don't believe it, read it, everyone he calls are ultimately saved. They ultimately become saved because of the promise. It's to everyone he calls. But he doesn't call everyone. The term that the Bible uses is election. And a lot of people want to argue that the call is universal. It's not. It can't be. And if we think about it logically, laying aside the scriptures for a second, we have to know it's not. It can't be universal. Think about it. There would be no need of judgment. Absolutely. Judgment would be stupid in the scriptures. It wouldn't make any sense. But think about it. The calling can't be universal. Think it logically. Deepest, darkest Africa before the gospel got there. They received the call of God? No. How shall they hear if no one tells them? Right? That's what the scriptures tell us. It's pretty clear. Before God called Abram in, in Genesis chapter 12, it's like, there's nobody. And then God called Abram. He didn't call everybody. He called Abram. Right? And interestingly enough, he called him to leave everybody. You'd think he'd say, stay and tell him. He called him away from everybody. It was exclusive to Abram, wasn't it? It was very exclusive at that point in time to Abram. And anybody else that passed away, what, what does that mean about them? They were not called. Now, people will say, and I don't have time to really get it, people will say, that's not fair. But let me just say, when people say that's not fair, you're right. You're right. That's mercy. Because the only fair thing is that we all what? That we all go to hell. That's the only fair thing. If he calls one person in the entire history of the earth, and that's it. That's mercy. And God is merciful. Fairness is for everybody to go to hell because we've all rebelled. We've all denied. But everyone who the Lord calls to himself, receive the promise. It goes back to, again, John 10. Out of all the Father gives him, he what? Loses none. Everyone gets the promise. The other side of the coin is, therefore there can't be any losing of salvation. 
Everyone gets the promise that is called. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. <clears throat> now, I've heard people actually butcher this verse. I'm just going to touch on one thing. Save yourself from this crooked generation. See, you've got to save yourself. But that's a denial of the context. How, do, how does one in this context save themselves? Repent. And the only way I'm going to repent is if the Spirit is at work in my life. That's it. Repent and believe. Save yourself from this, this crooked generation. And just like that generation was crooked, so is this one. So, in other words, what Peter just did is he spoke out against the generation too. The culture, didn't he? He condemned the culture as well. Verse 41, So those who received his word, that is, those who repented and believed, were baptized, there we saw it, and it was added that day about 3,000 souls. I wonder, just wonder, if some of the problems of the church are twofold. Some of the problems are, we don't really believe the gospel, so we don't preach the gospel. But number two, I think, oftentimes I think it's because we, 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 we are preaching a wrong gospel because we understand a wrong gospel. Because when we understand the right gospel, the right gospel calls into question everything. Doesn't it? I, I want you to think about this. Does the right gospel call into question everything? Or does it merely call into question your individual sins? Your specific sins? No. The gospel calls into question everything. What did he say? We just saw it. Save yourself where or from what? This crooked generation. Crooked in contrast to the path that is straight. Christ. Save yourself from this crooked generation. I'm going to say something really radical here. There's nothing about this generation and what this generation teaches that is right. Nothing. Nothing. I don't care what it is. Now, it's easy to look at it and say, well, yeah, you're right, the, the transgender thing, bad. It's easy to say that, isn't it? And conveniently ignore the things that we buy and we hold on to. Isn't that easy? But you've got to understand something. The things we buy and the things we hold on to are couched in and being driven by an ungodly, non-Christ-acknowledging thought process. It is. And you know what we find ourselves doing all the time? Fighting for our way and rejecting their way. Don't we? My way's right, your way's wrong. I've done this too, too many times. I'm just I'm picking the surface of how badly I do it. My way's right, your way's wrong. Politically, my, my candidate's right, your candidate's wrong. Um, philosophically, my philosophy's right, your philosophy's wrong. Uh, how to do the job. My job's right, your way's wrong. You know, and on and on. No, it's all being driven by the world's, by the, this crooked generation. You know what? You know what Peter, in, in essence, is implying here? The gospel is in contrast to all of that. Do you realize that? It's in contrast to all of it. It's in conflict with all of it. It's at war with all of it. <clears throat> we are not allowed to pick and choose. If you think some sort of philosophy or idea of something is right and another one's wrong, you ask yourself, where's Christ in that? Where is he in that? How is that for God's glory? Isn't that what it's supposed to be all about? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God? Where's God's glory in that? We're fighting for this and fighting for that, fighting against this, fighting against that. Where's Christ? It's all a crooked generation. Is it not? doesn't mean we detach ourselves from the world. No, it means I bring Christ where? To the dark and dying and crooked generation and say, I've got a better way. But in order for you to understand this better way, you need to understand what you've done. That's what Peter does, isn't it? That's exactly what he does. And we get all 
jacked up about oh this, that, and something else. No, it's Christ and Him crucified. From beginning to end. From 12 midnight to 12 midnight, Christ and Him crucified. Wicked generation. Friends, when we get this, we get the gospel. Because <laughs> this is the gospel. Bound by you, but this gospel cuts the heart. Because I find that I corrupt the gospel all the time in my thinking. In my speaking, in my communicating. I corrupt the gospel because I want, I have all these other agendas going on. All these other ideas. All these other philosophies. It's like, Christ. Period. The gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We can so easily get dis distracted, detached, and, and so wander astray so easily. <clears throat> we need to remember the main thing, and that can only be done by the Spirit. Jesus Christ, Lord, Messiah. In everything else, we ask you, Lord, to draw us to repentance. Jesus Christ, Lord, Savior. Amen. You can stand and sing as soon as we're ready.